welcome to episode 123 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. I love spooky season. (laughs) I know you do. I am so excited because this special Halloween episode, we are recording together in person, not virtually. Finally. This is going to be fun. Yeah. So we have a nice Halloween episode themed. I said that backwards. Themed Halloween episode for you all. I will be telling the true crime this week. Mom has the paranormal-ish story. (laughs) It's more educational. Oh, boy. (laughs) So for that, what cocktail are you drinking? Doesn't look good. It actually looks really good. Doesn't it look delicious? Did you leave the bag of candy upstairs? Because that's all I want. Yes, I left it upstairs. But doesn't this look super, super good? Yes, Mom, it looks super, super good. It's called a drunken peanut butter cup. It's like a martini. It's like my favorite candy. Your favorite candy. And I made it, you know, well, I made it to honor you. To honor me. (laughs) To honor you. Or taunt me. And to drink it in front of you because you can't. I can't. You can't. I can't because I am pregnant. (laughs) And you know what? I think it's so funny because a lot of these older episodes... There's, uh, we're like telling true the true crime story and they're like, and he came from a family of four or five kids. And I'm like, wow, four kids. <laughs> wow, five kids. <laughs> yes, I will be having my fourth child due in April. <sighs> Excited. It was quite the surprise for me and you, I'm sure. I call them blessings, not surprises. Mm-hmm. They're blessings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you enjoy that peanut butter cup. I can't believe that you didn't at least bring me the candy bag. No. Didn't think you needed it. Plus, oh. I didn't want you crunching in anyone's ears. Oh, that is like my biggest pet peeve. That would have been horrible. I'm just <laughs> munching away while everybody's listening. <laughs> and then he chopped her head off. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you to get your mouth watering what is in this. Okay, so I think you made a drink a li- just a little while ago where you actually infused the vodka with Oreos, Oreos or something like that. Yeah, when I covered Disneyland. So this is basically the same idea, except you're going to use a cup of vodka and a half a cup of Reese's Pieces and infuse that overnight. Like the Reese's Pieces M&M's? Yeah, you know, those little... Oh. Yeah. Those little Reese's Pieces things. So I wonder if you could just like infuse vodka with like anything. Because I know we've done the gummy bears before. That's right. We've done like we've soaked gummy worms overnight with vodka. Those are tasty snacks. And I've infused obviously the vodka with the Oreo. Now this. That's crazy. I want, man. I wonder man. We could infuse, infuse it with anything. With. Ooh, <laughs> I could use like habanero. Easily habanero infused i like how you went that way and i'm still thinking about candy (laughs) (laughs) okay back to the candy Mm, snickers oh my gosh now you got my attention okay i'm thinking all kinds of candy now i'm like skittles (laughs) and like starbursts and didn't we do skittles or was that just, no, that was a handful of Skittles with the drink, with the remember? That was for <laughs> yeah. the Simpsons episode. Right. Oh, yeah. No infusing there. It's just a handful. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, we have to start making a list of everything we want to infuse vodka with now. 
And then you can just taste them all for me. We're just going to become infused. Infused <laughs> vodka tasters. We're the infused, uh, infused killer hangover. The killer hangover. There you go. <laughs> all right. Are you ready? Okay. I know you don't want to listen. I know you don't want to listen to this because you can't have it, but. So you infuse that. I told you how to do that. Keep that Did overnight. You, you shake it around in a... No, you just put it like in a jar or whatever. And yeah, you can shake it for fun. And then you put it <laughs> in the refrigerator overnight. Okay. So you do have to prepare for this a little bit. Now, the next day when you're ready to have this delicious cocktail, you put it in a shaker over ice. It's three ounces of the Reese's infused vodka, three ounces of milk, two ounces of chocolate liqueur. Take that. Shake it really well in that shaker. There's the shaking. There's the shaking. Now, I know that we're not real good with garnishing, but I had to because it looked so darn cool. Okay. You ready for this? Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, you pour this into a martini glass. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's rimmed with like peanut butter. Okay. So take a little plate, put like a fourth a cup of peanut butter, smush it on the plate. Don't smish it. Just put it on the plate. I was like, you're making this really appetizing. <laughs> then you take the martini glass. Obviously, before you pour the alcohol into it. Okay, good call. <laughs> Turn it upside down. Remember when you're in like first or second grade and you have to write out in order how to make a peanut <laughs> yes, butter jelly how sandwich? How to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> just, I just thought about that. <laughs> just you would have You would have failed that, that <laughs> lesson. <laughs> okay, and then you have... A half a cup of crushed Reese's pieces, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So after you rim it with the peanut the butter. half a cup I devoured. Yeah, and didn't share with your kids at all. Mm-mm. Then you take and you just kind of spin it around on the Reese's pieces. Mm-hmm. So you have that beautiful crunchy rim. Mm-hmm. Then you just pour two teaspoons of chocolate syrup kind of lightly in the martini glass. Mm-hmm. And then you pour the infused vodka you know that in the shaker you pour that Mm -hmm. in this does make two drinks by the way or if you really like it your very own drink that you don't share with anybody in case that's me so (laughs) (laughs) anyway that is from delish.com i have to admit though i mean even though it looks really cool and i'm happy i did it it's a little hard to drink the drink with this crunchy stuff around the rim so so pretty this is why we don't garnish our drinks though we just want to drink them because we just want to drink them oh yeah it does call for a Reese's peanut butter cup to go on the side of that too you know in case you're not getting enough but like even as soon as you unwrap that it goes right in your mouth like I wouldn't even waste time if trying to put that in a drink (laughs) just saying just saying that's why we don't garnish (laughs) (laughs) those orange slices They never make it to the garnish. We eat it right away. Those limes and lemons, gone. Oh, boy. All right. Well, you enjoy your drink. Yeah, if you hear me crunching, it's because of the rim. What do you guys think? Should we con our husbands back onto the show to drink our beverages with us? Or should mom just drink by herself? Oh, no. I think our husbands, because drinking alone is just so sad. <laughs> drinking alone a lot of these episodes anyway because I know, cause it's virtual, virtual but, but we're gonna be recording together a lot so i guess we're gonna have to start conning people onto the show conning our husbands i think they enjoy doing it remember Do tom they, though tom <laughs> talked about mangoes forever and ever. <laughs> we had a few people write in about mangoes 
That's all right. I love to have them on the show. I think it's so much fun. And of course, you can't have any floaters with Alex, though. You got to be like particular with your cocktails with my husband. Yeah, you kind of do. So I'm going to let you make those. (laughs) Great. Uh, If you do hear snoring, it is my dog, Blake. And I can't bring myself to wake him up because he had 22 teeth pulled. Mm, He has six teeth left. Yeah. He's my little... Well, he's such an old man and he's just... His whole mouth is gone bad, apparently. (laughs) Poor Poor guy. So he's kind of drugged up and snoozing and I can't bring myself to move him or wake him. Wake him. But hey, another idea. We've got to bring Aiden back now, too. So we've got to bring... He's been asking when he can come back on. (laughs) He says he has some jokes saved up. So that should be interesting. And we'll make some mocktails. Yeah. (laughs) That's... That's true. All right. It is Halloween. It is Halloween. Grab your Reese's or whatever cocktail you're drinking. We're diving in here. This is a very complicated case. It's another case where we don't necessarily know what happened or who did it. Oh, no. Uh, This case has been a very long, complicated road. Our true crime hangover story this week takes place in the small Connecticut town of Bellhaven. It's a gated community with very large, luxurious homes. I should say estates, really. It's definitely a very wealthy community. Gotcha. And this was, this happened in 1975, but from what I understand, Bellhaven is still just a very wealthy community. Okay, so the year is 1975, and it is October 30th. Day before Halloween. Known there in Bellhaven as Mischief Night. Ooh. A night where the local kids would go out and cause some trouble. It was described by some past residents as harmless fun. Maybe TPing a neighbor's home and other resources said that kids would pull lots of pranks like jumping out in the street in front of oncoming cars. Oh, <laughs> I never heard of that one before. That just sounds stupid. <laughs> I don't think that sounds like harmless fun. But... <laughs> Not for the kid, for sure. Jeez. Uh, but the teens would kind of, you know, go out and cause mischief on mischief night. It was a thing. And 15-year-old Martha Moxley was begging and begging her mom to let her go out for it. She was begging because she was grounded. (laughs) She had stayed out past curfew the weekend before, but she just couldn't miss out on mischief night. No way. That's like prom. Martha was a very popular girl in the area. She had just had her braces off and had the biggest, most beautiful smile. She was described as extroverted, that everyone just really liked her. She was bubbly and bright. She was the California girl, just new to the area by about a year. Her mom begrudgingly ended up saying, fine, go have a good time, but you better make curfew. So Martha and a couple girlfriends meet up and head across the street to the prominent neighborhood. Sorry, I just have to stop. I got so much information on this case and researched the case for like a very long time. And I've known this case for a while, but like dove in deep. So when it came to writing this case, it was like, oh my gosh, I have so much information. You hear what I'm saying? Like this is probably going to be a little (laughs) longer episode, but it is, it's just, but there's a lot that goes into it. And I really wanted to make sure that I got a lot in it. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so Martha and a couple girlfriends meet up and they head across the street of their prominent neighborhood to the Skakel family home. Skakel home was kind of known as the local hangout for the neighborhood teens. And the Skakels weren't your average family. 
Rushton, the father, was not only the heir to a large family fortune from a mining company, so he was very wealthy, Mm -hmm. but also his sister, Ethel, was the wife of Robert Kennedy. Oh, oh my goodness. So it was kind of a known thing in the area, and I think... I think the Skagel kids like dropped it a lot. We're the Kennedy cousins. Like, a little name dropping going on. Yeah, we are the Kennedy family. There were seven Skagel kids. Okay, four is just fine. <laughs> I know I made fun of last. <laughs> there were seven, six brothers and one sister. Whoa. And like I said, their home was the hangout spot, especially because there was rarely any parental supervision. Oh, no. The Skagel children's mother had died from brain cancer in 1972, and their father, Rushton, wasn't the most hands-on parent. He put the children in the care of you know nannies, tutors, and he actually traveled a lot either for work or actually on this night, the 30th mischief night, Rushton was out on a hunting trip out of town. Oh, geez. Which was, I guess, pretty common. Martha and her friends head over there to the Skagel house. Because why wouldn't they? To hang out with Michael and Tommy. Now, Michael was 15, like Martha, and Tommy was a couple years older. These two brothers, Michael and Tommy, they were known for my research. I kind of gathered that Michael and Tommy specifically were very, I would say they were very competitive with each other. 48 Hours reported the two were known for having short fuses and would blow up. Their tempers would blow up. Mm. But they were also known as fierce rivals. Oh, the two of them? With one another. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. From her diary entries that were read on the 48 Hours episode, we can gather that Martha hung out with the brothers on many occasions. She mentioned riding with them to go get ice cream and hanging out with them at dances and such. On October 4th, she wrote, I went to a party. Tom was being an ass. At the dance, he kept putting his arms around me and making moves. And in another entry from September, the month before that fateful mischief night, she wrote, Michael was so totally out of it. He was being a real ass, telling me I was leading Tom on. I really have to stop going over there. So we can assume, and from witnesses and such, the Skagel home was the hangout, and drugs and alcohol were a pretty common theme and easily accessed over there. I'm not saying Martha partook. I'm not exactly sure. And even if she did, I don't even know if that matters. But that is just kind of what was was floating around. It It was there. Okay, so October 30th, mischief night, Martha and her girlfriends head over to the Skiggle home. According to witnesses of the evening, around 9 o'clock, Martha was sitting in the Skiggle car in their driveway, listening to music in the front seat of the Lincoln with Michael. Okay. Tommy came in the car a little later to join them. Martha was sitting in between the two brothers. Around 9.30 or so, some other Skiggle brothers barged into the car saying that they needed it. They were going to their cousin's house, the Tyrians, across town to watch the U.S. premiere of Flying Circus, Monty Python. Okay, gotcha. Michael asked if Martha wanted to go. She told him she couldn't. She had to get home. She had to make sure she made curfew. She didn't want to get in trouble again. Michael got in the car with his brothers and he left to go to the Tyrians across town. Okay. Tommy stayed back with Martha and her friends. All right. The friends gave statements in which Tommy and Martha were being pretty flirty at this point. You know, they're kind of pushing each other back and forth, like just kind of playing. And at one point, Tommy pushed Martha down and he fell on top of her. And the friends got a little uncomfortable. (laughs) And so they left Martha and Tommy alone. 
Tommy told police that the two said goodbye around 9.30. He watched her walk across the street towards her house, and then he went inside and started working on a paper he had due for school about Abraham Lincoln. An alibi, his live-in tutor, and actually his name was Ken Littleton, and he had just moved in that day as their live-in tutor. Like I said, Rushton kind of hired like nannies and tutors. So Ken had just moved in that day. And he is Tommy's alibi because they both hung out maybe a bit after 10 o'clock and they watched some TV together. All right. Based on neighbors and reports of dogs barking that night, police estimate the attack on Martha happened around 930 or 10. Now, the scenario, the process of the attack is only assumed by the evidence that was found. But it is perceived that while walking up the circular drive to her front door, Martha was hit and attacked with a golf club. Oh. A part of the shaft of the golf club, along with a pool of blood, was found in the grass on the side of the driveway. Yes, you heard me correctly. A part of the golf club's shaft. Jeez. It was assumed by prosecution and forensics that she was violently, even described as killed in a frenzy. I mean, this is a steel golf club. Jeez, I mean, I can't even imagine how that could even happen. Jeez, Louise. The golf club was broken into four pieces through the process of the attack. Blood droplets led across the driveway from where the attack occurred. And from there, Martha was dragged across the lawn towards a grove of trees on the side of the house where the body was left hidden. The second piece of the golf club found near her and the third part of the shaft because... When it broke, it became, like, sharp. Of course. This was stabbed through her neck. Oh, God. And this is what killed her. The fourth piece, probably the most telling piece, was the handle, Mm -hmm. and it was missing, probably because of fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Um, But to this day, it has never been found. (sighs) Now, it's interesting because even when I first heard this story... I heard this story years ago and it's always stayed with me and I've and you'll see why when I get to the end of it. I've I've been following it, but it's always been described as this frenzy, like she was attacked and she was beaten so badly that the golf club broke. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's how I've always read it, interpreted it. Uh, I watched this documentary on oxygen. It's called Murder and Justice, the case of Martha Moxley. And it's with Laura Coates. She's a retired prosecutor. But she went in and she went over everything in this case. It was a really great documentary. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. So the Moxley home has since been torn down and in its place now is two homes. That's how big this house was. So every, you know, the grove of trees, nothing's there anymore. Right. But what she did is I believe on like a soccer field or a football field, she had somebody tape off like what the where the driveway was, where the trees were and where the attack first happened, where the golf clubs were and like everything. So she could walk through and see the visual visual of the crime scene. But then she like ran tests on things. She met with some forensic scientists and experts. She interviewed family members. She interviewed attorneys like she really dove into this case. It was really neat to see. It was three parts. I highly recommend the documentary. The most interesting thing was when she tried to duplicate what happened with the golf club. Mm-hmm. And it was a steel Tony Penna Lady 6 iron. I don't know anything about golf clubs. I hope I even Neither. pronounced that correctly. <laughs> 
But she goes in and she's got her hard hat on and she's got her glasses and she takes this duplicate of this golf club Mm -hmm. and she starts like bashing it into the cement, into the ground. Right. And nothing happens to the club. Yeah, I can't imagine. There are nicks in the cement, but nothing happens to the club, which imagine hitting a person. I mean, it damaged the cement. So I can't even fathom that. Right. So then... Which is, this is where it becomes even scarier to me. Because then Laura Coates shows that when she steps on the shaft of the, so the stick part of the golf club. I know what the shaft is, yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, it bends very easily and breaks. Uh, uh, oh. So think of that. And like, Isn't you're using that... this club to knock somebody out and you're beating them with it. Because she was beaten with it. Right. But then you can just imagine this like calm manner that Laura was stepping on this golf club to break it. And then it was sharp. Like she showed how sharp oh, this shaft is. Oh, of course it would is. be. Yeah. So that just makes it scarier to me is that somebody like really put thought into it. They just, they. And they, they must have done that two times because there were four pieces. Yeah. And like to me, in my opinion, this person took the time to kill her. Like they hit her unconscious and then they meticulously broke the club and used the pieces as like essentially different types of weapons because now they're sharp and they stab her. Like that just becomes scarier to me. Oh my I understand gosh. like it's always been described as like this frenzy killing, which is scary in itself, but it almost became scarier to me when you think about them meticulously in the moment planning this. It kind of reminded me of that Lululemon murder that you discussed where she used everything in the store as a weapon. Just grabbing it, grabbing it, grabbing yeah, it, grabbing it. it. it just... That makes it scarier to me. They talked about it in more depth on the Oxygen show, but they also said something that was really disturbing about the attack. It's believed that she was struck hard, probably knocked unconscious, most probably in a fit of rage, clearly, because there was a frenzy beating aspect to it. And the why and the who obviously is unknown. But she's hit. And in that moment, it's like this psychological test to the perpetrator. Who is more important as she's laying there unconscious, this young woman or me? Like after that first initial hit, do I give aid or do I finish the job? Mm. Think about that. They beat her. She's unconscious. And then they actually had the time to sit there and think about it. Like, do I aid her or or do I, I run or do I maybe have to finish She didn't even off? see who it was. So maybe she I just run. She could have. She could have seen who it was or she couldn't have. So there's kind of three scenarios so this there is person like, makes the decision to finish her off he drags her to hide her under the trees and they talked about this on that oxygen documentary but it's like a kid hiding their dirty clothes under their bed like a kid hiding the glass vase that they broke of their moms you know it's like they're hiding the evidence mm-hmm. so was she stabbed there on the um, driveway or was she stabbed in the bushes in the grove of trees in the grove of trees okay and it's fir trees. It's like big, big, big fir trees. But this, but hiding her also is giving them time to come up with an alibi because she's not going to be found. And they don't find her till the next day. So it just sends shiver down my, shivers down my spine that somebody in that moment made that decision. You know what I'm saying? Like it was just such a meticulous, it's almost scarier to me than some kind of frenzy attack. It's almost more personal even a frenzy attack is super personal but you know like 
just hitting her to death. Oh God, I hate talking about this, but hitting her to death with the golf club is one thing, but then breaking the golf club so that you can, I mean, there's so much anger sick anger or personal anger well at that point at the stabbing point though he's made the decision to finish her off though like no no i know he's like it's me or her so you have the evidence of the killing i think this person had to have known martha it's just it's too personal of an attack and there's so much rage in this kill it's personal yeah and that golf club, the Tony Penna Lady Six Iron, was found to be part of a set found at the Skagel residence. Shoot. But I, I will have to say this is, again, all the different resources I've watched and listened to over the years. And I can't tell you where the golf clubs were. I honestly can't because some resources will say that the clubs were found in the Skagel home. Mm-hmm. Others will say that they were bins outside of the Skagel home where they kept all their golf clubs, kind of like sheds outside where they kept their golf clubs Mm -hmm. and then Rushton even gave an interview at some point saying that he was always stepping over golf clubs in his yard because of all of his kids and so now your possibilities open of who had access to To the the murder weapon right but I'm leaning more towards anybody I think it was fair the clubs were fair game to anybody because this is already a hangout spot for several people all the time there's no parental guidance and having your golf clubs outside in a shed or scattered on the yard seems more. And the kids who hung out there would know where they were. I mean, yeah, but no big and like deal. these were the mom, the deceased mom's club. But again, think about it. This was thought out. This wasn't a golf club that was close at hand to the murder site. They sought that. I mean, they well, grabbed that golf club and walked across the street to maybe wait for her. Well. I don't agree with that. I think that they attacked her from behind. I think mm-hmm. either they they were mad, they watched her walk away, and it was easily accessible. It's laying on the ground or it's right there. I don't think it was like throughout the night they're thinking, I'm going to hit her with a golf club. They picked up the golf club intending to hurt her. Yes. That's why I feel like it was just laying in the yard. So it wasn't like a... a, a it's not like he had to go into his shed. He sought out a... a you know what I mean? I mm-hmm. feel like it was just kind of laying around. Okay. There's a group of teens there. But were they still there? It sounds like everybody left, except for the kid who was doing his, was it Tommy? Tommy was the one. Tommy doing his research on Abraham Lincoln. But then he sat with his tutor and watched something at 10. But she was killed between 9.30 and 10, correct? If, If you go off of dogs barking in the neighborhood, yeah. But I don't even know if you can go off of dogs barking in the neighborhood because this is mischief night. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There was a neighbor girl who lived, um, and this witness was never used in trial, but her garage backed up to the Moxley home. Mm -hmm. And she was awoken to somebody in her garage that night around 930. But this witness was never used in trial. But that could have potentially been the same person. Yeah. This person would be, I mean, this physically, this person would be very bloodied. There would be a lot of blood. I would assume so. I would imagine. Okay. So the weapon is accessible. Uh, That being said, though, the initial suspect was Tommy, the last person to potentially see Martha alive. But remember, he had an alibi, his tutor, Ken Littleton. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael is looked into as well, um, but then rushed in on the advice from Tommy's lawyer, stopped cooperating with police. And around this time, he also fired Ken Littleton. 
And this kind of started this unraveling of Ken's life. He gets really depressed. He starts using very heavily. And the police are like, well, he would only have these problems if he felt, you know, he was guilty, guilty. or something. Oh, so, you know, this is the 70s and the drugs and uh, mental health issues were not looked at the same as they aren't now. I hate to say it. So they're like, you know, he's beating himself up for something. And so they really looked into him heavily. I mean, really looked into him heavily, which now he's got the cough through the nose throat. That can't be good for his mental health either. Uh, but again, like, where is the motive? This guy just moved in <laughs> <Yeah>. that day. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And he could have easily met her that evening when she came over with everybody. But police ended up not being able to find any connections. And then it just, that's it. The case sat cold. Mm. Then comes the 90s. This happened in 75. So now we're in the 90s with advancements in forensics and DNA evidence. And then there also comes the arrest of another Kennedy cousin, William Kennedy Smith. He was arrested in Florida and charged with rape. He would eventually be acquitted. But the trial is all over the media because he is a Kennedy cousin. Mm-hmm. Because it's all over the media, rumor starts to spread that William was in the Greenwich area on mischief night and that he killed Martha Moxley. This was, of course, an unfounded rumor. But it did put a lot of press interest back on Martha's case. Good. Which in turn put a lot of pressure on the Greenwich Police Department who was covering the Bellhaven case. Again, good. Yes. So they started reopening it and started looking into it again, which is just like, come on. Uh, Greenwich, Bellhaven in particular, had never dealt with a murder like this or or a murder. They really weren't equipped. And then the Greenwich police, they weren't they just really weren't equipped for this. But it's like it's a 15 year old girl that's brutally killed. You, You just you just you're done. Basically in her front yard. You're done. And you just leave it. Okay. It's around this time as well that Rushton Skagel hired his own private team of investigators. So this is the 90s. Mm-hmm. Years have passed. And now he's hiring his own. And I think it's just so weird. But um, this group of retired FBI and retired detectives, um, they're called the Sutton Associates. And the Sutton Report was created. Now, this was made for Rushton's eyes only. This was just... His private investigators, it cost him nearly a million dollars. Jeez. And again, this is nearly two decades after the case. Mm -hmm. So I just think that that's just weird. Like, why now? While writing a book on the Moxley case, veteran crime journalist Dominic Dunn got a hold of the Sutton Report. Oh. And he shared it with former LAPD homicide detective Mark Furman. And those of you crime enthusiasts like myself, you recognize those names. Uh, Mark Furman, Dominic Dunn, you will recognize them from the OJ trials. I know I did when I was, we have to cover that case one day. Yeah, I would love to cover that case. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Uh, Now, Furman, he writes his own book called Murder in Greenwich, Who Killed Martha Moxley, where he lays out what he discovered from the Sutton Report. Okay. And it's rather interesting. The first thing is that both Tommy and Michael's stories shared with the family's investigators, the Mm -hmm. Suttons, the Sutton Associates, were different from the stories that they had shared with the Greenwich police in the initial investigation. You, okay. Remember, Tommy said goodnight and watched as Martha walked home and then went inside to write an Abe Lincoln paper and then watched TV with his tutor around 10 or so. 
Well, according to the Sutton report, there was no paper written or worked on that night. Apparently, no teacher ever even assigned the Abe Lincoln paper. (laughs) And police did discover that. Oh. But never followed through with anything with that. (sighs) Okay. But then after Martha's friends left, because remember, they were embarrassed at the flirting happening between Tommy and Martha. Martha and Tommy apparently did some making out mutually, Tommy claimed. This lasted about 30 minutes. And then she went home and he went home chilling in the living room with Ken Littleton. And they watched some TV and then he went to bed. Okay. Now, this really sets him as officially the last person to see Martha alive. Putting them like a little closer, like the relationship now is a little closer than I think investigators officially believed at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, first you just hear that they're just flirting now. You know, they're making, they're making out. out. Right. But Tommy isn't the only one that lied in the initial interview with police. According to the Sutton report, Michael's story was that he went and watched the Monty Python show at his cousin's that night. Yes. And returned home around 1130. All of that he shared with the police. And that was all true. But he didn't share with them that around midnight he could not sleep because he was so drunk and so high. And he said that he kept thinking about a lady that lived down the street and he wanted and he was starting to get horny thinking about her. So he went over to her house to see if he could see her in the window. It's 12 o'clock at night. He couldn't. So he thought... And I'm kind of like, this is not an exact quote, but he said something along the lines of Martha likes me. So I'll go over there and I'll see if I can get a little kiss from her. Oh, Michael had a very big crush on Martha and later on would admit he really wanted her to be his girlfriend. But her and Tommy were kind of a thing. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Or new ish. Mm -hmm. From her diary, she wasn't into either of them and kind of thought they were both assholes. But I don't know. We've all had our asshole period. But that night, he heads over to Martha's a little after midnight. He climbs a tree on the side of the house and starts yelling into the house, trying to get her to wake up. Again, this is all according to the Sutton Report. And let me throw this at you. Years later, Michael Skagel will go on to want to write an autobiography, like on the Kennedy family. And like he wants to write an autobiography. Yeah. And he records himself like on an audio tape to give to his ghost writer mm-hmm. to write it. Mm-hmm. What he says on the tape is that he went there, he was yelling into her window and he has no luck. And then he proceeds while sitting up there in this high tree to masturbate. Gosh. Now, remember, he's pretty drunk and pretty high and he's doing that for a little while. And then he's like, he like snaps to and he's like, what am I doing? <laughs> I need to go home. <laughs> and, the and the next thing he knows, he's waking up to a knock at the front door of his house. And it's Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mother. And she's distraught. And he thinks, oh, my God, I've been caught doing the dirty in her tree. Like, I am in so much trouble. But she's there looking for her daughter. Right. Okay. So, like, why admit this? (laughs) He literally placed himself at the scene of the crime. These trees that he was in was above apparently where her body was. My opinion. He knows that science and DNA evidence has grown. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why say this story 15 years later? To explain why there's semen there? Exactly. Masturbating there in the tree gives reason as to why his DNA evidence would have been underneath the tree where Martha's body was found the following day. Right? Yeah. Do you kind of see 
No, I, I it just kind of came to me as I was writing this up because I was like, why a while? Why 15 years later would you? Was the proximity of the body and the tree? I mean, close. was she very close? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Like, what a story. And that is about the stupidest BS story that I've ever. I mean, what a story. <laughs> Michael Skagel. He had some issues. He had a drinking issue. He started drinking at like 13 around the time his mom yeah. died. He was sent to a reform school, different boarding schools, but he was sent to the Elon school. Have you heard of this place? No. I am going to cover this, I think, for our patrons. I think this this is a school worth an entire episode itself. Like, seriously, this school, quote unquote, I'm using bunny ears here, uh, was insane. They used attack therapy. Mm-hmm. The idea is to like absolutely tear this individual down by screaming and attacking and physically attacking and oh, tearing no. these young teens and young adults down to their very core. And the idea was to tear these people down and then build them back up. It's very traumatic. Oh, jeez. Um, and like I said, I'm going to cover this. Patrons, look out for it. It's fascinating. There are many a true crime tales at that school. Okay, so in the late 90s, a state attorney gets word of the Sutton Report and all the evidence set up in Mark Furman's book. And this state attorney, now he convened, now this is just very rare and I thought it was very funny. Maybe it's just me and my humor, but he convened a one-person grand jury. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) And I guess this is a thing, but he got a one-person grand jury. They looked over all the evidence and potential suspects. And in 18 months after hearing testimony from over 40 witnesses, there is an arrest warrant sent out in January of 2000 for an unnamed juvenile. Yes, that's what the warrant said. But this unnamed juvenile was Michael Skagel. Although at this point, he's 39 years old. Right. Okay. (laughs) He has aged. And the media circus begins. begins. I already set the stage for the strategy of the prosecution already. Essentially, his story had changed multiple times. Uh, the potential motive being that he liked Martha. Maybe he saw Tommy and Martha together and he mm-hmm. grew angry. He and his brother were bitter rivals and a lot of things. So maybe his motive is this jealous rage over the attention that Tommy was getting and not himself. As I mentioned before in his proposed autobiography he did mention that he wanted martha to be his girlfriend they also had witnesses come forward from that elon reform school that he had attended Uh who said he had confessed to them while he was attending the school oh i'm kind of getting ahead of myself but the defense you know they're playing the card already and had been poor little rich kid his mom died in his teen years. His dad was absent. He started drinking. Yeah. And they sent him to this school and this reform school and, and that and he rehab. And they've they've already been like setting this, oh, woe is me story up for him. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's almost as if it was all planned to send him to all these places. Oh, to help with the story? Yeah. Like, why hire the PIs 15 years later? Yeah. To see, have we covered our bases enough, almost? Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think this it that way. This is my opinion. This is definitely, I could be totally wrong here. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there was this acquaintance from the Elan School. His name was Gregory Coleman. 
and he made reports claiming that Michael had told him back at school, quote, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy, unquote. And he also detailed to Coleman what he did to Martha that night. He had made advances and she refused him. And then, quote, he drove her skull in with a golf club, unquote. Okay, can can I question you here? Uh, no. As far as... <laughs> Well, hell, okay. I'm kidding. Go. As far as the timeline, though, he's not even around the area. He's across town watching Monty Python. So did she, when he, if, how did he get her out of the house to do this? I will uh, (laughs) I don't, exactly. Like, exactly. We don't, I don't. We will touch this question <laughs> later. I don't know. I don't, I'm really like I am seriously tongue tied. Um, okay, go on. Yeah, we will definitely be touching on that. Okay, so Gregory Coleman. Back to Gregory Coleman. He was called into the beginning trials in front of that you know one grand jury, and he gave witness testimony during those early hearings mm-hmm. to that one grand jury. Well, I guess after those hearings, he admitted that while he was on the stand during those hearings. He was on drugs. Oh, geez. Like a lot of drugs, meth and heroin, because he was trying to avoid drug relapse. But I guess one of his testimonies, he wasn't on anything. So the judge allowed him to be a witness in the trial officially against Michael. But by that point, when it was time to go to trial, Coleman had died of a drug overdose. Convenient. (laughs) But his testimony was still read at the trial. Okay. They also had, I believe, eight other witnesses claim that Michael had implied to them that he had killed Martha. Just couldn't keep his mouth shut. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, really? I'm not saying that these witnesses are liars, but they, he implied he killed her, one. Uh-huh. Two, you gotta remember, he's a Kennedy. People are gonna be coming out of the woodwork to get their 15 oh, of minutes course. of fame. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I'm not criticizing these witnesses by any means but it's just got to be really hard to find a legit witness in these kind of trials and a big case like this right yeah right again i'll go into the elan school more but like these students these kids were forced to wear these signs that just you know i am a rapist or i am whatever they did wrong where they were there and apparently one of his signs says i killed a girl but it's like did he like you, you're supposed to be bringing up all of your bad trauma and all your negative stuff and all of this bad stuff to get it out of you to move on to the good right like that's kind of like this attack therapy that they did did people hear that he might have had involvement so they're like making they're trying to get him to get that out of his system like putting it do you see what i'm saying like are they kind of framing him to right i, I don't understand <laughs> If you're wearing a sign that says, I killed a girl, why aren't you in prison instead of into this reform school? Or is it wearing a sign like... I? Well, if there's not enough evidence, which there never was. But it's just to tear them down. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Keep going. This is a bizarre case. And maybe I just confused everybody by saying that. But that's just like, that was all hearsay. Again, there's no proof of him ever wearing that sign. That was just hearsay. Okay. And then these eight other witnesses, they, they claim that he had implied to them. Well, I mean, we can perceive anything. If you already think like he had something to do with it, you know what I mean? They can read into anything he said. Or again, I'm just if playing you, want your, if you want your 15 seconds of fame, 
you could always say implied and then say, well, I didn't say he said it. I said he implied it, you know. So DNA wasn't discovered linking him to the crime scene. Mm. Uh, I mean, besides the golf clubs, Mm -hmm. that was really that tied his home. His home, not him. To the crime scene. Right. Um, I guess, you know, anybody could have grabbed the clubs. From anyone that could have grabbed the clubs, I think his motive was the most promising for prosecution. So that's why he was arrested. It took the jury four days to name Michael Skagel as guilty in the murder of Martha Moxley. And this is 27 years after Martha had been killed. Mm. It took them this long to come up with this kind of evidence. That's 27 years. And it came, they only came up with this. Jeez. But DNA wasn't found. No. And I can't even know if you can, I don't even know if you can call this evidence. It's like all circumstantial evidence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nothing really pinpoint exactly Michael to killing Martha. Can I ask a really fast question? Do we know for sure it was a guy who did this? Uh Uh-uh. No. Her pants and her underwear were found down at her ankles. Had she been sexually abused? No proof of that. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I guess long story short... So he's found guilty in 2002 and basically right away he hires new attorneys and starts working on an appeal. Mm -hmm. They file appeal after appeal and his cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was basically heading his defense at this time. Mm. Kennedy was adamant that Michael was innocent and he was not happy with how his cousin even got convicted. It was all circumstantial evidence. So I guess, long story short, remember how Michael was proposing that book and made an audio tape? Mm-hmm. Well, that audio tape was used by prosecution in a lot of ways, but it was used by the prosecution in the closing statements. But it was, I can't even say it was edited. They played this portion and it said something along the lines of, oh my God, did they see me last night? And I remember just having this feeling of panic, unquote. So they played that portion to the jury, which, yeah, that's what he said. But it was in the context of waking up with Dorothy Moxley at his door, thinking that he had been caught masturbating. Right. In the tree at the house. Yeah. But it was played to support him as the murder. Right. right. Yeah. So now the Kennedy cousin, like, was trying to use that in the appeals. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. He was also using the fact that Michael's past defense didn't do a very accurate job. I guess there was a witness at the Tyrion's house, their cousin's house, where they went to go watch the Monty Python. Mm -hmm. And this was not a family member. So now you have an alibi seeing him there at the Monty Python viewing. And it's not a family member, which is a bigger deal. Yeah. But this was never brought to trial. This witness was never brought to trial. They never used that for his alibi in trial. His defense never used it. Mm, Okay. So if the attack did in fact happen at 930, between 930 and 10, as they claimed, he would have been eight miles away watching that show. Right. And he did. He wasn't even home until 11 anyway. Right. I believe that's what he said. Okay. But police nor his defense looked into this and police never even looked in, in other potential at other potential suspects. Okay. They never questioned anybody. They never looked into them. Again, they'd never had anything like this happen. So yeah. But my question is to play devil's advocate on this as well is, okay, so you have this high prestigious Kennedy family. Wouldn't you think you'd be kind of geared to start looking somewhere else before you start? (laughs) I don't want to bother you. (laughs) 
No, I know what you're saying. But remember, we're talking about an affluential whole, I don't want to say neighbor. It's bigger than a neighborhood. It's a whole community that's, you know, it's not just one house. And yes, they were cousins of the Kennedys through a marriage. Uh, Not like them. They were the family. Huh. Yeah. I mean, the Kennedys in the 70s, be real. Maybe they had something against the Kennedys. I don't know. And that's true. And even Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the attorney, mm-hmm. he does say that, like, growing up, we were not close because Rushton and the Skagels were very Republican and I'm a Kennedy. We're very, mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. Democrats. Even then, even then we have our politics in separate ways. But he says that the family was not close. That doesn't mean that the Skagels weren't dropping, name dropping Kennedy, well, though. Of course they would. It's, it's a big name, but... Okay, so, sorry, I keep getting off topic here, but other potential suspects. Tony Bryant. Yes, this is Kobe Bryant's cousin. <laughs> Lots of extended cousins in these families. Seriously? In this story, yes. Tony Bryant's Kobe Bryant's cousin. Uh, Tony Bryant, he used to live in Bellhaven, but had since moved to New York. And he came back from time to time to visit Bellhaven and see some friends. And apparently he would bring his two friends from the Bronx... Adolf Hasbrook, uh, who went by Al, and Burton Tinsley. And they would come in and hang out. They went to like, they, Tony said that they went to like a dance and Al set his sights on Martha. And according to Bryant, after attending this dance where he danced with Martha and he hung out with Martha, he saw Martha dancing with like other guys there too. And he grew jealous and told Tony that he had to have her. Mm. The three boys traveled to Bellhaven that mischief night in 1975. They went to the Skagel's house and they fooled around out there, but no one was home. Brian said that they were playing with some golf clubs, swinging them around and some golf balls into the trees. When Al and Burke said that they were going to head off and find Martha. Bryant claimed that Al had said that he was going to do her, quote, caveman style, meaning essentially have her the way he wanted her. Mm-hmm. Bryant said he wanted nothing to do with this, and he left. He took the train, and he left out of Bellhaven. He met up with Al and Burke the following Monday, and Bryant claimed the two, without naming specifically who, were talking about how Al had gotten his. But it was kind of assumed by Bryant that they meant Martha. Martha. Bryant claimed he never came forward because, well, for a few reasons, he brought the two to Bellhaven. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want to be tied to what happened. He didn't want people to end up blaming him. Plus, he was a black man in a very prominent white neighborhood in the 70s. Just the fact by saying that he was in Bellhaven on the time of a murder, he felt would make him guilty. Mm-hmm. And then he watched as Michael Skagel was brought in and arrested and then charged with murder over very circumstantial evidence. So he's like, I'm holding my tongue. Right, right. They got their man. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to say anything. But then after Michael was convicted and received 20 to life, Brian felt like he did need to come forward. He was never friends with Michael. The two did not like each other very much, actually. But he felt he had to do what was right. So he reached out to Robert Kennedy Jr. in hopes of getting his story across. But like I mentioned, this is already after the fact that Michael was in prison for mm-hmm. 20 to life. Mm hmm. Brian gave a videotaped interview to Michael Skagel's defense team. They used this video as well as other evidence in 2005 in one of their appeals for a new trial. But Brian refused to testify under oath. Oh, shoot. Something to mention. But at this time, he was also in prison for tax evasion. 
Bryant had been arrested for armed robbery in the past. Mm. Again, a lot of people were saying he just wanted his 15 minutes of fame. I think what Kennedy says, though, is that he wanted immunity before sitting under oath, before putting himself at risk again for being there, for bringing them there, for anything. He wanted to make sure that he got immunity. Cleared from, yeah. Uh, And this was not offered. The tape was played for the judge in 2005, but the appeal was denied. This did not stop Robert Kennedy Jr. He kept working on the case, and in November 2013, it paid off. After serving almost 11 and a half years, the case was overturned. Oh. And Michael Skagel would be released and ordered a new trial based on the fact that his defense did not defend him properly. And here's where it gets even crazier. In 2016, prosecution convinced the state Supreme Court that the defense was competent. Therefore, the conviction was then reinstated. Kennedy went on to write a book titled Framed in 2016, where he shared the story that Bryant had shared with him, along with other eyewitnesses that backed up Michael's alibi. Other evidence, he said, had pointed to someone else. So Kennedy says that there were two hairs found on the police blanket that was used to wrap up Martha. And the hairs were said to belong to a black male and the other to an Asian male or Asian ethnicity, which all the police there, everybody is white. And this would pin Al and Burke there because Al was of African-American descent and then Burke was of Asian, Indian and black. Oh, my gosh. So apparently there was ethnic hair found on the blankets. Which to Kennedy proved that, but, 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 was that even brought up? These hairs out? were never brought up. These hairs were never mentioned. So <sighs> if the hairs were there or not, I don't know. Nobody, I, I don't have proof of these hairs. It was never brought up in trial. It was never brought up. He's the only one that talks about the hairs. He also claims how shoddy a job the police did. Like she lay there under this sheet for a really long time. So long that like neighborhood dogs were walking around the crime scene. It was just not managed very well Mm -hmm. it was not done to protocol which some of this i think was true Uh, i am in no shape or form standing up for that but these i just they never handled we already kind of talked about this but they'd never handled a case like this so i don't know if they knew how to do protocol or it was just too big for them and they Mm -hmm. just got overwhelmed i'm not making excuses i i don't know right uh and then he used martha's diary And he said she wrote about seeing Tony Bryant and Al and Burke, or she called them strangers, at a dance just weeks before she was murdered, proving that they were in fact there and that she saw them, noticed them. Uh, But the diary has since been released, and it was used in the 48 Hours episode where they read the entry from that dance, Mm -hmm. and nowhere did it mention Bryant or Al or Burke or strangers. It said, quote, October 4th. Dear Diary, tonight was the Sacred Heart dance. When we walked in, some guy asked me to dance, and some other guy asked me. It turned out to be a slow dance. It was Stairway to Heaven. At the fast part, he wouldn't even let go. I also danced with Dickie, Neil, and Peter Zeminski. A lot with Dickie. Unquote. This would be Richard Burns, who danced with Martha. He has been interviewed, and he said he danced with Martha, like, all night. Okay. He does not remember seeing Bryant or meeting two strangers. I mean, you'd remember that. They knew who Bryant was. And they did. 
Well, yeah. Well, yeah, he because Brian lived there. Was, okay, yeah. So they would know him. They would know if they saw him there. Exactly. And this is a he's a he's a tall, big kid. He's six foot. And this was this dance was a few weeks before she was killed. Who who held the dance? It was, was it a their sacred heart dance? I don't know who held it. The two strangers would have stuck out. Yes, definitely. And so the guy would have noticed them. Yes. Especially if they were dancing with Martha, who it seems Dickie liked because they were dancing all night. So he would have noticed that, too. Yep. And Richard Dickey said that they danced the whole night. Anyway, so Kennedy writes this book in 2016. Then in 2018, after a new judge was hired on the bench, the state Supreme Court reversed their previous decision, granting Michael Skagel freedom saying his defense did not serve him well, especially in respect to that potential alibi witness that saw him watching Monty Python. Mm -hmm. Although free, there may be a possible retrial. Oh, God. But Michael Skakel walks, walks free. Free, maybe. Not incarcerated, sure. But Dorothy, Martha's mom, said something in the Oxygen documentary I watched that really struck a chord with me. She said, he's not free. Martha will always be with him. Her death will always be with him. What a twisted story. The Skagels want the case reopened. They want it reinvestigated. John Moxley, Martha's brother, suggested nowadays with the advancements in DNA and evidence, all of that could potentially prove Michael innocent. Could. So who killed Martha Moxley? Oh, my gosh. It's just crazy. So it could have been two people who did this. In the Oxygen documentary with Laura Coates, Dorothy says that she heard a few people out in her lawn that that night. Mm -hmm. She thinks there's probably a group. She didn't deny that Michael was part of that group. She thinks that he knows or did something. She's she's pretty adamant that Mm -hmm. Michael had something to do with it. But I don't know. Alan Burke... Al, it sounds like I'm saying Alan Burke, but I'm saying Al and And Burke. Burke. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were called in for questioning, but they both pleaded the fifth. They've never spoken to anybody. They've never done, you know, there's no evidence that even, they weren't even, they claim they weren't even there. Was their DNA taken at all? If there was, again, nothing has been released. But who knows if even DNA was taken from them. But if any DNA was taken from from the scene. Well, I thought you said the DNA didn't match Michael's. There was no DNA that matched Michael's. Okay. So was there DNA, though? I guess then they had to have found DNA there. Right. Okay. There's something to think about on my ride home. Uh-huh. Wow. Now you see why this case is really stuck with me. And I've been following it for a while because there was some rumblings of a retrial or another trial or that was like a couple years ago, but I've not heard anything since. I don't know what's in the works or if anything is happening. Mm-hmm. As of right now, but it's just and all of this back and forth and Kennedy and people from New York and all of this, you lose sight of Martha. Totally lose sight of victim. Oh, that poor girl. It's horrible. Oh, happy Halloween. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Yeah. Do you guys have any theories or anything? Let us know. Here we are, amateur sleuths. <laughs> Always. <laughs> 
I just feel so bad for her and her family. And well, you know, and, and if Michael didn't do it, I feel terrible for him too. I mean, it's sure, sure, sure. I just like her mom wakes up. Martha's not in bed. And so she starts going to, she knows he, she went to the Skagel's house. So she goes over there. No, Martha's not here. And I guess I had like some trailer parked outside. So she's like, can we go look at the trailer? And Michael's like, sure. So they go look in the trailer. Because at this point, Dorothy's probably like, you know, she probably drank too much or something. And she's sleeping it off somewhere. She's not there. So then she's calling friends and she's going here and she's going there. And this whole time, Martha's laying in her front yard. Among some trees. <sighs> beneath the pine trees. And it's just, ugh, I hate when there's no justice. I know. Move on, Mom. Moving on. We are not forgetting, but we are going to lighten things up. We're going to move on to my educational part of the episode. This is why I wish I had a cocktail. (laughs) At least some M&Ms to crunch on. Well, we talk about paranormal all year, so I thought it's Halloween and... Can you, Beth, tell me where Halloween even came from? All Hallows Eve. Where um, did that come from? The candy stores. Why do we dress in costumes? Well, I know. Like, why do we carve pumpkins? Well, I know like Day of the Dead and stuff, but that's like a separate thing. That's separate, darling. So no, mom, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's why I did the educational thing. <laughs> oh, boy. I just thought it'd be interesting for you and our listeners to hear where did Halloween even come from? Because it is a rather large holiday now. And how did it even originate? Because we, I've heard, you know, oh, it's a pagan holiday. We can't, we shouldn't celebrate it. And then I heard, you know, it's a, it's not a pagan holiday and we can celebrate it secular. And I was actually interested to see where Halloween came from. I want you to begin by closing your eyes. Okay. All right. And just picture this, okay? Because I know you can. Spider webs are draped. Pumpkins are carved. There's a flicker of lights. and You've watched scary movies all month. And all leading up to that one night that children as well as adults look forward to. Then in the evening, it's finally here. Families eat dinner a little earlier than normal. Children hardly being able to eat because the excitement of putting on and becoming their favorite storybook or movie character or their favorite animal. Coats, or hopefully just jackets, are put on and families head out. The smell of fall is in the air. The crunch of leaves can be heard. And parents wait in the driveway as their children run up to the doors of neighbors or maybe even strangers holding out their plastic containers or bags to be filled with candy. Lots and lots of candy. (laughs) But only after three special words have been said by even the smallest of children. Trick or treat. You can open your eyes now. But you can picture doing, I mean, I, I, I remember doing that. Now, to be honest, Halloween was never a big event in my home growing up. It's a thing in Germany now, but that's relatively recent. And as many as of you know, I was brought up for the most part in Germany, my mother being German and my father being first generation American. But when we did live stateside during my father's deployments, my sister and I got just as excited as anyone else. Now, I have to be honest, 
Our costumes sucked. <laughs> no, I mean, really, they did. <laughs> My mother was not a seamstress, and she was not, God rest her soul, not very creative. So one year... <laughs> My sister and I literally, literally had plastic pumpkins stuck on our heads. And it was called good. Oh, my God. Please tell me there's pictures of this. (laughs) No. Oh, my God. We couldn't even see where we were going. Oh, my God. You know those big plastic pumpkins that you carry with you to get the candy? (laughs) Yeah. Like my mother cut a hole in the bottom of that and stuck. Stuck them on our, stuck them on our heads. <laughs> <laughs> <So> horrible. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter because we still got the loot. And in those days, we were allowed to go out with a group of friends without parents. But of course, not while we were wearing our pumpkin heads. So you had friends. <laughs> <laughs> that was when we were younger, when the pumpkins fit our heads. Oh my God. When we got older, oh, you so know. so this was we multiple left. years you had pumpkins on your head? <laughs> I, mean, I used that all I, worked the first time. Let's just keep doing this. Well, my father was deployed a couple of times, so maybe she cut holes in sheets one year. I don't remember. Oh, my gosh. I do remember the pumpkin heads, though, because they really were uncomfortable. Okay, so. A Halloween. 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 <laughs> Halloween was not a huge holiday in our house as you grew up, but we did no. carve jack-o'-lanterns. Of course. We watched scary movies on the weekends of October, and I tried to make a spooky dinner on Halloween. I did try. <laughs> you and your sister did have creative costumes, though. I tried to, I don't sew, but I, I think I did a pretty darn good job putting creative costumes on you guys. I gave that stuff up once your brother was born and I bought costumes <laughs> why didn't I think of this years earlier <laughs> easier was that year you dressed up as Esmeralda as, and your sister was her pet goat yes <laughs> yeah I was Esmeralda from the hunchback of Notre Dame and Katie was a goat <laughs> But the costumes were, I mean, I'm sorry, I have to pat myself on the back. The costumes were always really good. My favorite year was the year you dressed me as a housewife. I was literally in curlers, a robe, and a face mask. (laughs) Oh, that's right. And a face mask. Like I said, (laughs) I am kind of gifted in the creative part. Gifted, yeah, I'll give you that. And (laughs) everyone knew who you were. (laughs) You didn't have a plastic pumpkin on your head. (laughs) This is true. Usually, I would stay home to hand out the candy, and your father would usually take you out to trick-or-treat. Full transparency here, and I don't know whether you know this or not, but once we finally got you to bed, we would go through your candy. I think that's like the parent <laughs> obligatory. And it and it isn't to check whether it's been poisoned or not. It's to, to pick out your favorite, yeah. your favorite candy. That's like the best. <laughs> And I can't remember what your father's was, but Snickers and Heath bars were mine. So that's why you never got Snickers or you Heath know, bars. I, you know, a lot of you are probably listening to this too late, but I will say I saw this online and I think I'm going to do that this year. The Great Pumpkin. So you let your kids pick out a couple of their favorite pieces of candy, mm-hmm. but you say the Great Pumpkin's coming tonight. And the more candy you leave for the Great Pumpkin, you, you're going to get a little gift from the Great Pumpkin. 
So that also gets rid of a lot of their candy. Don't you get rid of a lot well, of their candy? Well, it gives an excuse as to why I got rid of a lot of their candy. You guys never noticed. It was like, but we're yes. always, we always have heaps and heaps and heaps of just candy. And it's, I mean, we, they don't need a quarter of the stuff. No, no. But I thought that was such a good idea. Like little Halloween books or something like that that the Great Pumpkin can give them to get rid of the candy. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, move on. <laughs> Sorry. Most American families have their traditions of decorating, watching scary movies, making and going to ha- haunted houses, and trick-or-treating. But have you ever wondered, how did this holiday even start? It's terribly commercialized now, but it wasn't like that in the years past. Halloween dates back about 2,000 years ago to the ancient Celtic festival of Soen. The Celts lived in what is now Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France. Soen marked the end of summer and the start of the cold winter, a time usually associated with death, and not necessarily mortality, but the death of crops. It became dark. The sun wasn't out all the time. That death. The death of the season. November 1st was considered the start of the new year. But there was a very special time on the night of the old year and the new year that the boundaries between the world of the living and the dead became blurred or the veil became thin and the spirits of the dead could return to the earth. It was believed that because of the presence of these spirits, it was easier for the Celtic priests to make predictions about the future, something the people really depended on to keep them going through the brutal cold winters. Now, home fires were doused, and villagers were dressing costumes made of animal heads and skins. Then they would gather at the huge village bonfire to burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the Celtic deities. When the celebration was over, and these would last about three days, when the celebration was over, they would relight their hearth fires from the sacred bonfire to help protect them through the following year. That's so cool. On to Rome. I'm just <laughs> trucking along here. On May 13th, 609 CE, Pope Boniface IV announced a new celebration, All Saints Day, which honors all saints of the church deemed to have attained heaven. I'm inserting here, and not to be too historical, but in 43 AD, you had the Celtic territories invaded by the Roman Empire, and by the 9th century, Christianity had spread there. So Pope Gregory III moved All Saints Day to November 1st in 837 CE. By doing this, it was a way to help convert the Celts to Catholicism. I see. So kind of putting manipulating kind of putting (laughs) their kind of incorporating in a way yeah appeasing everybody for those not familiar with all saints day it's a day to honor and remember all the saints of the church and believe me we have many saints i mean there's a saint for everything and there is a feast day for every saint so throughout the year Every day has a saint, but we have so many saints that there's not enough days in a year to cover them all. So we do All Saints Day to remember those saints. And then there's All Souls Day. 
on November 2nd. And this is where those that have passed are remembered. So it's a special day for us to remember families and friends and and people who have passed. It's just a special day to take some time to really remember those people. All right, enough religion. All Souls Day was celebrated in much the same way as Soen. There were bonfires and people would dress up as saints, angels, or even devils. (laughs) All Saints Day was called All Hallows. And the night before it, October 31st, began to be called All Hallows Eve. Mm -hmm. And eventually, Halloween. During the colonial days in America, Halloween was very limited because of the Protestant religion, which also did not acknowledge saints. So basically, all three days were not celebrated. Uh There were, of course, exceptions. Maryland, being one colony, as well as some southern colonies, that did celebrate. Okay. Okay, in a different ways. In these places, you had a mesh meshing of beliefs and customs. The first celebrations included public events to celebrate the harvest. Villagers would gather and sing and dance and share stories of those that had passed. This would lead to the telling of ghost stories. Mm-hmm. By the mid-19th century, annual autumn celebrations were common, but had not yet spread everywhere in the country. But by the end of the 19th century, America was a land of immigrants, especially the Irish who were fleeing the potato famine. Halloween became more popular. And by the 1920s and 30s, it became a secular holiday celebrated with events, parades, and parties. Along with all of this celebration, there was also vandalism. Cars were overturned. Cemeteries were desecrated. But like, why? Uh, the celebrations led to mm, drinking, drinking, and and drinking leads to bad decisions. I, as we sit here and you drink your cocktail <laughs> and crunch on my on my rim. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, why does that happen? Why does that always happen to ruin everything? I know. Um, uh, it wasn't until the 1950s that Halloween became more directed to children. What they kind of did in between that time to curtail some of the vandalism is then they started having community parties like in community halls and stuff to contain people instead of having these parades and bonfires and stuff out in the open. You mean they didn't like all these free range bonfires? (laughs) Free range chickens (laughs) along with free range bonfires. (laughs) So then they started doing a more community-based. Then it just started filtering down and became more of a children's type thing to kind of curtail all the vandalism. This is also around the time of the phrase trick or treat. So treats were given out to prevent any tricks. So I thought it was trick or treat. The kids asked trick or treat and you made them either do it trick or you gave them a treat right have you ever seen somebody make a kid do a trick yes really yes my dad did that oh no that's his sense of humor though but he goes okay do a trick for me he always gave him candy but my dad my dad would do that yeah he had a great sense of humor but okay come on come on even though trick-or-treating is for kids and you know when you've got a i don't know when a bunch of teenagers ring my doorbell at 
Halloween and they're not even dressed up. They're going trick or treating. I'm like, really? Oh, I like it when the teenagers come. I think it's sweet. Usually they're dressed up, but. No, I've had them when they weren't even dressed up. I was like, really? Reminds <laughs> me of Hocus Pocus and those kids that. Those bullies? <laughs> the bullies. Oh. <laughs> but, okay, teenagers. What do you do on Halloween? I mean, you're too old to go trick-or-treating. Well, we took a Ouija board out in the middle of a field and <laughs> drank some Boone's Farm. <laughs> okay. Well, might have been better than I. I drove around and egged people. <laughs> That's horrible. I can honestly say I've never egged or teepeed somebody's house. Yeah, I did. I moved to the United States when I was 16. And then it was like all these new traditions that people were doing it was just like we're gonna throw eggs at cars oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh one little egg out the window oh oh, oh <laughs> my gosh and then i think one time we actually did this we did the the dog poop in a bag and you light it on fire and That's you ring the horrible. doorbell <laughs> see i always just had a guilty conscience <laughs> if my friends were saying they were gonna do it I, i'm going home I was such a goody goody. I would have felt so guilty. Yeah, I was a goody goody too. But you know, were you lighting poop on fire on people's <laughs> but, porches? But were you? <laughs> were you? I think I TP'd once, but I've never been a good aim at anything. So oh my the TP God. would probably the toilet paper would usually end up on, on my their head yard, anyway, on so. their flower bed, <laughs> and end up on my head. So you know that wasn't really fun. <laughs> Oh, a trick or treat may date back all to All Souls Day in England, where the poor would beg for food and be given, quote, soul cakes if they promised to pray for the family's dead relatives. Well, this was called going a souling, which eventually <laughs> led to children going door to door and being given food and money. Oh, I read some food, money and ale. Oh, wow. Start handing out beers. (laughs) There is this lady in this old neighborhood we used to live in, and she would give um, bottles of wine out to the parents trick-or-treating with their kids. Wow, that's a nice neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I miss that neighborhood. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. That's a very nice thing to do. As you can see, many traditions have blended together to make Halloween. Do you know about the jack-o'-lantern? I'm getting there. Oh, okay. I was just curious. It sounded like you were coming to a close. (laughs) No, not yet. (laughs) Here's some fun ones. Carving pumpkins (laughs) and sticking a light inside of them. This practice came from Ireland, where instead of decorating pumpkins, which are American, they carved large turnips and potatoes. Yeah, I was going to... With you sca- didn't share this. I was going to share this. <laughs> with scary faces and put them on their doorsteps to ward off evil spirits. Yeah. I the, love that. The English would do so with large beets. <laughs> the word jam. <laughs> Sorry. Hey. I'm pushing Dwight Schrute in his beet farm. <laughs> and just how messy that would be to carve a face into a beet. Juicy. Would you even You'd see? You'd be totally stained. <laughs> the word jack-o'-lantern actually comes from an irish folktale about a man named stingy jack would you like to hear it sure stingy jack invited the devil to have a drink with him why not (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, you hear about that happening all the time. All the time. True to his name, Stingy Jack didn't want to pay for his drink. <laughs> so he convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin that Jack could use to buy their drinks. Clever. Clever lad. Once the devil did so, Jack decided to keep the money and put it in his pocket next to a silver cross, which would prevent the devil from changing back into his original form. Oh. Jack eventually freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother Jack for one year and that should Jack die, he would not claim his soul. The next year, Jack again tricked the devil into climbing into a tree to pick a piece of fruit. They just call him Tricky Jack, not Stingy Jack. While he was up in the tree, Jack carved a sign of the cross into the tree's bark so that the devil could not come down until the devil promised Jack not to bother him for ten more years. Soon after, Jack died. <laughs> As the legend goes... God would not allow such an unsavory figure into heaven. The devil, upset by the trick Jack had played on him and kept his word not to claim his soul, would not allow Jack into hell. He sent Jack off into the dark night with only a burning coal to light his way. Jack put the coal into a carved out turnip and has roamed the earth ever since. The Irish begin to refer to this ghostly figure as Jack of the Lantern, and then simply Jack-o'-lantern. Those Irish and their beer come up with the greatest <laughs> tales. Oh, laddie, have you heard of the Jack-o'-lantern? That was actually a pretty good accent. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. Okay. I can't talk about different cultures without bringing in De lo. Okay. I'm gonna, de las muertes. De las de, de muertes. Las muertes. Nope. <laughs> dear, dear. Oh, Day man, I of have. The dear, de las muertes. I, man, I, I practiced this for 10 minutes, I swear. Yeah. Day of the Dead, <laughs> which is celebrated in Mexico and Latin America. I've often found this celebration very fascinating. It's amazing. It begins the evening of October 31st and goes to November 2nd. It honors the dead, who it is believed can return to Earth on Halloween, families set up altars in their home to honor their deceased relatives. It is decorated with flowers and photos, candy, fresh water, and even some of the deceased favorites' foods. Mm -hmm. Candles and incense are constantly burning to help the deceased find their way home. If the grave sites are distant from the home, flower petals are strewn from the grave to the house to aid the dead home. The gravestones are cleared and cleaned and cared for and on november 2nd the family gathers at the graveside to remember their dead relatives sharing food memories tequila and sometimes even a mariachi band these three days of remembering the dead are not days of sadness or gloom people wear bright colors there's flowers everywhere music and of course there's the parade most of us have seen if not personally then on tv or in books in these parades, people dress like skeletons, and not scary ones. The most recognized is the female skeleton that is found most everywhere during the celebration. La Katrina is the emblem of the Day of the Dead. She is dressed in beautiful bright colors, suggesting a time of celebration. And her suggestion of a smile is perhaps a reminder and an acceptance of mortality. The dead should be remembered 
not feared. I love, I love that. I, I, I've always just have total respect for that tradition. I think it is the neatest tradition. It is. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Such a wonderful way to honor. To remember. And remember your, yeah, yeah, your deceased relatives or just, it's so, I love it. And, and not that death is a scary thing. Mm-mm a celebration into the next journey or if you you know if you believe in that along with these different traditions costumes have also made transitions 20th century costumes were homemade and geared to spooky things like ghosts and witches and monsters the goal was to look creepy and to hide one's identity then as halloween became more of a children's event popular costumes were then those that children enjoyed like Mickey and Minnie Mouse. In the 1950s, now these were all handmade still, mm-hmm. made at home. Yes, okay. by people that were more crafty than, than my mother. Your mother. <laughs> In the 1950s, mass-produced costumes became more affordable. So then you had characters like Batman and Robin, princesses, clowns, and cowboy costumes. In the 1970s was when the young and old be- began wearing presidential masks. <laughs> Nixon was a very popular one at the time. It's so random, I think. It's so funny. <laughs> a new trend started in the late 70s and 80s. The costumes became more gruesome because of the interest in horror films. Hmm. But during that time was also Star Wars. <laughs> so many people dressed up as Princess Leia, Darth Vader, and the robots, and C-3PO, and the other one. Oh, you know your stuff. <laughs> See? My boy's dressed as C-3PO and... Um, yeah, that's the one I can't remember, the little one. C-3PO and R2-D2. R2-D2, and R2-D2 is the little the little one. Yeah, my boy's dressed as those. And those are my absolute favorite Halloween pictures because they couldn't see. Oh, I can relate with me. Okay. And so in all their pictures, I'm like, stand together. They're like six feet apart. <laughs> In all of the pictures. Like, guys, one step closer. <laughs> Come on. They're not like together in any of the pictures. Boinging their heads. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one type of costume I find interesting is the sexy costume for women. Now, I can't say that I've never dressed in a sexy costume when I was younger, but I think it's funny that the costume market is like saturated with them now. Mm. It's. It, yeah. I guess they became the thing in the 1960s and just kept getting more and more popular. Well, they since think then. because the adults started wanting to celebrate Halloween, they want to dress up. So they had the adult parties, and then the women are like, well, I want to dress. The one up. time a year that I want to be someone else. And so uh, one year, Tom and I went to a Halloween party and I dressed up as Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> but I didn't do the white dress one. I did when she was more relaxed so I had Marilyn Monroe wig on and I did the makeup and stuff and then jeans and a white shirt that I tied on button pretty pretty low so that was about as sexy as <laughs> that I got but and then uh Tommy was a biker with a leather jacket he looked so cool <laughs> oh my absolute favorite costume was an Alex and I dressed up as LMFAO did they sing party rock Anyway, it was just like leopard print leggings and like wigs and just crazy big sunglasses and it was just simple and fun and comfortable. 
it's so fun when you can dress up with a partner like that and just yeah <laughs> now there are some lesser known halloween rituals some may surprise you they seem to focus more on the future than on the dead for instance in Ireland in the 18th century, a matchmaking cook would hide a ring in the mashed potatoes she served on Halloween night in hopes that whoever found the ring would find their true love within the year. And That's a Halloween tradition? And hopefully not choke on the ring. <laughs> in their mashed potatoes? Yep. I just, wow, that's kind of fun. There you go. Another insight into one's true love is if a w young woman ate a dessert of walnuts, hazelnuts, and nutmeg before she went to bed on Halloween night, she would dream of her future husband. Cute. Now, I guess that could turn out to be a nightmare, though. Yeah. It could. What if the man she dreamed about was an old, ugly, and mean monster kind of guy? Oh. <laughs> During this time, young women could toss apple peels over their shoulders. Then they would turn to see if the apple peels formed the shape of their future husband's initials. That's kind of fun. <laughs> Talking about apples, apple bobbing at Halloween parties was pretty darn competitive. The first to grab an apple would be the first to be married. Oh. Now here's a now bit of... I don't do that anymore because people are, you know, concerned with germs. <laughs> Here's a bit of a frightening one. The young women or woman would stand in front of a mirror in a dark room and hold a candle. So it's totally dark. She's holding a candle and she's looking into the mirror and she would look over her shoulder for her future husband's face. But like why? Like that's just like that whole scenario in the dark with a candle is just setting up failure. Like that just sounds scary. It's I wouldn't want to see my husband's face, my future husband's face in the mirror even, over my even shoulder. Even though my handsome is like, my hand, even though my husband is like super handsome, that's just like scary. <laughs> Sorry, Alex, but I wouldn't want to see your head over Tr like just floating, floating over my shoulder. Over my shoulder. <laughs> that would just be scary. I could just see him like making faces even going like, ooh. <laughs> Like, I'm marrying that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you're listening to this on Halloween or maybe after Halloween, I hope you have a fun and safe Halloween. And I hope you had a fun and safe Halloween. But did you know that Halloween, last bit of trivia, is the second largest commercial holiday after Christmas? After Christmas? Yep. Second largest commercial especially, holiday after christmas especially even nowadays like they start selling halloween stuff which i'm i love ridiculous i know august and i just i love fall though anything with anything i just i love it well that was fun <laughs> i'm gonna hide something in mashed potatoes on halloween now just and one of your boys is gonna choke on it don't do that <laughs> <laughs> I'd like a really big black spider or something. Yeah, that's what I was Aiden thinking. Aiden will never eat mashed potatoes again in he his life. He would never eat again. <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would never eat my cooking ever again. And every day he'd say, Mom, Mom, did you check his food? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thanks for the distraction. Yes, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.
you know, I still, when I was probably in the first grade, our choir teacher, our music teacher taught us a Halloween song. And I still sing that song to this day every time I write down the the word Halloween. And I don't know, that's just a little fun tidbit about me that nobody will care about. <laughs> but every time I write down, I go H A double L O W double E N spells Halloween. <laughs> but you do the same thing for banana, thanks to Gwen Stefani. B A N A N A S. Okay, maybe that's just my demographic, but anyway. <laughs> well, just a random tidbit. I can't spell Halloween without thinking of that song. I can't spell Halloween unless I think of that song. <laughs> I can't spell Halloween. Exactly. <laughs> I'm serious, though. <laughs> and on that note, all of our resources will be on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. If you want to hear from us every week, join us on Patreon. We will release a regular episode every other week. But if you want to catch us because you miss us, we release something every week on Patreon. The link to that will be in the description of this episode. There's also going to be links to our social media. And if you want to buy us a drink, which, oh, by the way, I feel horrible that we have not thanked this person already. They sent us a drink a while back and I totally forgot to give them a shout a shout out. This was from a James and his wife. And thank you guys so much for the money you sent for a cocktail. It'll thank go, you. Thank you. Yeah, you say thank you because I can't drink them. Uh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you say thanks. But all the links are going to be in the description of this episode. Also on our website. Follow, subscribe, like, and review if you can. We love it. Thank you. And uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. This is a good one, Mom. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love ya, kid.